There's a movie called Edge of Tomorrow, a science fiction action film released in 2014, which resolves, which revolves around a military officer named Major William Bill Cage, played by Tom Cruise. Cage is an officer with no combat experience, but he finds himself thrust into a future where Earth is under attack by an alien race known as the Mimics. And in this future, humanity is losing the war and is in danger of becoming extinct. And because of a dwindling infantry, Cage is forced to the front line, despite his lack of battle preparedness. Cage is killed during a battle with the Mimics, but then he unexpectedly wakes up, finding himself back at the beginning of the same day. He discovers that he has somehow gained the ability to reset time each time he dies, and essentially reliving the same day over and over again. He seeks help from Rita Vrataski, a legendary soldier played by Emily Blunt, uh, who recognizes his unique ability to reset the day of the same day and trains him to use it to their advantage. Cage and Vrataski embark on a mission to find a way to defeat the Mimics using Cage's time-looping ability to gather information and improve their combat skills. The film combines intense action sequences with elements of science fiction in a time-loop narrative <laughs> as Cage and Vrataski repeatedly face the same day over and over again trying to find a way to break the cycle and save humanity from the alien threat. Each day, Cage and Vrataski fail and die at the hands of the Mimics, but they advance a little more to reach the end goal. So Cage's skills increase with each day, and he becomes battle-hardened and finds a way to eventually find the Mimic's source of power and eventually defeat it, breaking the cycle. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Our lives can feel a lot like that. We face the same hardships and trials that seem relentless day after day, but all the while, the Lord is squeezing the choicest grapes out of us to produce the best wine. Our faith strengthens in Jesus, and our resolve is stronger in his faithfulness and his plans to see us through. And that's what David is going through on his way to becoming the king of Israel. The Lord has him in a special boot camp called Running for Your Life. David experienced so much up to this point on his way to becoming king that it was unmistakable that the calling was, for, was sure. Samuel, after all, anointed him as a young lad to be the next king. He then defeats Goliath with an AR slingshot. I thought I would get a lot more laughs than that. I mean, come on, people, throw me a bone. He wiped out 200 Philistines, and he brought back their foreskins as surety to secure Saul's daughter as his wife. And the women in Israel kept shouting, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. David was on mountaintop after mountaintop, but never spent any time in the valley, which is where we are in our text. You see, David was nowhere near ready to lead a nation. His character had not been forged in the fires of affliction and persecution. 
It's here where the Lord does his best work in David and makes him ready. In order for the Lord to prepare you for his calling on your life, this is where he puts you and I. And like David, he allows those people, those Saul's in your life, that maybe want to harm you or demise you or only, only to teach us, you and I, how to love our enemies. And more importantly, learning to let the Lord handle our situation instead of taking matters into our own hands. Pastor Chuck Smith once said, if you try and defend yourself, the Lord will let you. And that's the theme I feel Jesus has led me down in this text. And I hope it encourages you today that this is a simple message, as most of mine are. I mean, I didn't wear a bike helmet as a kid. I'm not that smart. (laughs) But I hope after today you'll see the freedom in letting Jesus handle your circumstances instead of you trying to do it yourself and failing. Let's go to the text. Verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. Is there a way to raise this? Sorry. Oh, that's much better. Now, assuming you know Saul's backstory, uh, now, assuming you know Saul's backstory, he was elected as king of Israel by the people of Israel. Israel was unique in that Yahweh was their king. All the other nations had monarchies ruling over them. And Israel wanted to be like all the other nations around them and have a king that could be admired rather than the unseen king who could only be known by faith. They wanted to be ruled over by anyone else other than Yahweh. So Samuel rebukes Israel, but the Lord tells Samuel, do what they want. For they're not rejecting you, but me. So God let them choose a king for themselves to represent them. Kind of sounds like our political leaders, doesn't it? So Saul did well for a while, but his ego got in the way. And he disobeyed a direct order from God to wipe out the Amalekites. If you're familiar with Dr. Michael Heiser's work, you'll know that the Amalekites were one of the giant clans and that Yahweh was at war with the giant clans in Canaan. Saul decides to spare the life of Agag, the Amalekite king, as a trophy for himself. And there's a reason Yahweh told them to wipe them out so that their seed would not spread as it had in Genesis 6. So Samuel comes into the camp, rebukes Saul, and executes Agag, something Saul should have done in the the first place. The Lord then sends a distressing spirit on Saul that causes him depression, anxiety, and paranoia. And we don't know what kind of spirit this was, whether it was a demon or an angel, but whatever it was, it served Yahweh's purpose. 
So Saul became afraid of David and he was threatened by him. His paranoia kicked in. So Saul, the, uh, in the, as the biggest waste of time, pursues David to try and eliminate his threat. So David was in a town called Keilah, protecting it, when the townspeople ended up selling him out. Saul gets wind of David's location and pursues him. And while in pursuit, Saul gets wind the Philistines are amassing troops and executing raids on Israeli villages. So Saul turns his attention back to the Philistines. And this gives David time to hide elsewhere. And this is where we pick up the story. Notice there in verse 2 that Saul took 3,000 chosen men to chase David down. This was five times as many men as David had. This was sheer paranoia on Saul's part. When we're not surrendered to the Lord, this is exactly what happens. We begin to act foolishly and irrationally. When we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit, being led by him, this is the result. Causes anxiety and we do foolish things out of self-preservation. Saul was driven to accomplish something apart from God's will. He really didn't want any part of God's will for his life. And David was never, but David was never driven, but David was led. Do you see the difference? And it always turned out in David's favor. What about you? Are you driven to do something in your life? Because you want it, or are you led by the Holy Spirit and what he wants for your life? One causes mayhem, the other causes blessing, life, and peace. So it says that Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way, and David and his men were hiding in the innermost part of the cave. Saul went in to relieve himself. Translation, he was going to the bathroom. Now, this is interesting to me. Out of all the caves at En Gedi, and you've probably seen a bunch of them, and there's a ton there. Um, in fact, uh, I, was, I was thrilled when uh, Stephen sent me a, a picture of the cave at Adol, and that was, cool. that was kind of a thrill for me because I've never been to Israel. Um, and David also saw it too. So out of all the caves, Saul just happens to go relieve himself in the cave that David is hiding in. Happens to. Uh, as as my uh, as my Jewishness in the Gospel instructor Barney Kasdan, he's a Messianic Jew, once told me, "Coincidence is not a kosher word." <laughs> so Saul had to go to the bathroom. He goes into the cave to relieve himself, and David is there hiding. God arranged this as a test for David and his men. The Lord hands Saul to him on a silver platter to see what he would do. Now, you may be experiencing certain problems in your life, like David. And there are times when the Lord would present you with a possible solution to see what you would do. And those times can be tests to see where your heart is at. Those times are tests to see whether you will be the solution to your problem or if the Lord will be the solution to your problem. Look at verse four. 
And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 6. And he said to him, He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Excuse me. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. So here's David's loyal men and they see an opportunity. David, now is your chance. This is it, man. Take it. This is what God said would happen. Go for it. And they certainly meant well. They loved David. But the thing is, God never said that this would happen. This was wishful thinking on their part. Never once did the Lord say up to this point that he would deliver David's enemies into his hands. This was wishful thinking on their part. They wanted David to be king, but they wanted it with misdirected zeal. And in David's mind, he had a chance to take matters into his own hand and end his suffering and pain. There are people in your life that will often give advice, people that love you and that want the best for you. But that sometimes the advice that they give does not line up with the will of the Lord. It may seem like good advice, but is it the will of the Lord or the will of them? David knew in his heart what the will of God was, which we'll see in a minute. But this was not the way to get there. David's men certainly meant well, had good intentions, but God's plan was never for David to usurp the king. Are you surrounded by people who give you what seemingly is good advice, but not necessarily within the will of the Lord? You see, the best advice comes from people who want God's best, not my best. God's best is my best. And it's important to surround ourselves with godly people who want the will of God more than my will. Proverbs 16.22 says, Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. Proverbs 24.6, For by wise guidance you can wage your war. In the abundance of counselors there is victory. So David, he initially listens to his men. He gets up. He rises up and he cuts off a section of Saul's robe. And and when he does that, David's heart is stricken. He's convicted. He is convicted. Why was he overcome with conviction? Well, to give you a little bit of a background, a robe in ancient Israel had several applications in culture. Your robe identified your status or position in a society. It signified your tribe and identity within that tribe. Especially the hem of the robe acted as an identifier of rank within your tribe, like stripes on a sergeant's sleeve. The hem was very important in ancient Israel. Jesus even refers to the Pharisees' hypocrisy by saying in Matthew 23, 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. 
They make their phylacteries broad, which was like a box that they wore on their heads, and enlarge the borders of their garments. In Exodus 28, describes the special attention given to the priest's robe, specifically the hem, tassels hanging off the robe. And if the hem recognizes authority and power of a person, where did the woman with the issue of blood seek to touch Jesus? I don't ever remember her saying, well, if I could just touch his shoulder, his back. She said, if I can only touch his hem. David was convicted because he cut off that which was not his to take. Saul is king and David knew full well that the office of king is not controlled by men, but by God. And by cutting off a piece of authority, he knew he was stepping on holy ground and his actions were not pleasing to God. Now keep in mind that when temptation comes to take matters into your own hands, there will be a need for restraint and self-control. After all, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. When you could turn the tables and make the situation favorable toward you, it takes great restraint to allow the Lord to do his work in your life. Think of Jesus in his showdown with Satan in the wilderness. Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. He had every right and all power at his disposal to make the adversary a grease spot on the ground. But he doesn't do that. Jesus had eaten 40 days and was on the verge of starvation. He could have turned the stones into some Krispy Kreme donuts, but he chose not to. He could have fed himself. And with one word, Jesus could call down legions of angels. He could throw lightning bolts from his being if he wanted. He could do anything he wants. But Jesus uses tremendous restraint against the devil. He used the word of God to smash the enemy. And he trusted that his father would take care of every need he had when the father was ready. And of course, we read in the story that the angel showed up and fed him. What? Angel food cake. Oh, come on. This, is, this will be my last official sermon. <laughs> the devil presented an easier way for Jesus to go, but it wasn't the best way. You don't need to go through the cross. The kingdom's going to be yours anyway. Why don't I just give it to you now? And he said, no way, because of his love for you and me. And so, too, there may be a way for you in your life, even at this present moment, that would seemingly solve your problems. But in the end, you would not get the result you wanted because the Lord was not leading you. David knew it, it was God who put him in that situation, and it was God that would get him out. And some of you have been waiting on the Lord. Some of you wonder, when is he going to act? When is he going to come through? Has he forgotten me? No, on the contrary, he loves you. He loves you. When did uh, Jesus decide to go? D do you notice in the Gospel of John, Jesus waited till Lazarus died 
before he went to raise him from the dead? Why didn't he come sooner? I believe so that God would get more glory and that Lazarus would get a greater blessing. Although, I don't know, I think Lazarus was probably like, what, why did you bring me back here? What are you doing? But anyway, I digress. The Lord is going to make it right again in your life because he loves you. And often we desire something in our lives that will maybe solve a problem, relieve a burden, relieve some pressure, fulfill a desire. So we pursue and often find ourselves cutting off pieces that were never ours to begin with. You belong to the king. Romans 6.18 says that you are a slave to righteousness. And that means his desires for you and me are more important than our desires for even ourselves. And besides, in the long run, his desires produce more fruit and more joy and more peace than anything else. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses marries a Cushite woman, an Ethiopian woman. And we don't know why, but Miriam and Aaron, Miriam is Moses' sister, she complains. She has major problems with this marriage. And it begins to escalate in the camp, in the nation. Numbers 12, 2 says, and they said, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? We're just as important as he is. Miriam was challenging Moses' authority, placing herself equal as Moses. And the Lord didn't take too kindly, and he says, come here, you three. And because of this, the Lord disciplined Miriam by giving her leprosy for seven days. And she was forced to go outside of the community of Israel for seven days. You see, she assumed authority that was not hers. Now you may be, there are people in your life, maybe it's a boss, a leader. There are things you don't like about them. Maybe there's things that really just rub you the wrong way. But if what they're doing is not immoral, unethical, or sinful, then instead of complaining and gossiping and trying to change it, maybe take your case before the Lord and let him resolve the matter for you. All my life, all I ever desired to be was the pastor of my own church. I wanted to be a Calvary Chapel pastor. That was my dream. I was raised in a theologically sound environment. Besides Pastor Chuck Smith and his amazing teaching, I was exposed to men like Alistair Begg. R.C. Sproul would come to our church three times a year, and he exposed me to the doctrine of justification. It was incredible. We had all these amazing, Dr. Mark Eastman, Dr. Chuck Missler, amazing, John Corson, Skip Heitzig. And I thought, man, I'm, I'm equipped. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. But that's not what God had for me. He didn't give me the grace to do that. And I pushed and pushed. But every time I did, I failed. And he said, no, I'm going to put you in a little Presbyterian church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I am so glad he did. Because I am so happy here to be able to serve you all and, and to be a part of your family. You see, David would become king but only when God was ready for David to become king. On his terms, not David. There was still work to do in his heart. 
And when we scheme, claw, strive, and try to produce for ourselves our own robe, it becomes exhausting. So much easier to just let the Lord put it on you when he's ready. Verse uh, 6, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. And verse 7, he goes on to say, he persuaded his men. And David passes this test. He directs his men that this is not God's will, despite Saul's idiocracy and paranoia. He is still the Lord's anointed king. And here is where David passed the test and is starting to become the leader that God wants him to be. It takes more courage to let God deal with something than you handling it yourself. It's also a good example to others around you. Verse 8, afterwards Saul arose, went out of the cave, and called after Saul, My lord the king! <laughs> Here's the robe that I cut off. Check it out. So David let Saul put some distance between him and his men. By the way, the title of the sermon is Frontal Robe Disorder. I don't know. <laughs> David pays homage and bows to Saul. He bows to Saul. He bows to Saul out of reverence and respect. Saul's a terrible person. And David shows to respect to a man who doesn't deserve it. But David is doing this out of clear obedience to the Lord. The sharpest dagger is not one of violence, but one of mercy. The Lord puts people in our lives that are unreasonable, unforgiving, abrasive, and toxic so that we'll practice and show them kindness. After all, that's what makes us different as believers is when we love our enemies. But you don't understand, Brett. My boss, he is awful to me. He is so unreasonable, making me do things that aren't right. I understand. I really do. But the Lord's way is to show love and respect to those that don't deserve it. Because that's the way of the cross. This is not just hard to do, but it's impossible. But you can do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. After all, Jesus at the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Easier said than done, but it's true. And in Romans 12, 19 and 20, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his Head. Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Lord is really good at repaying. He does a much better job than I ever could. A much better job. And in verse 9, David says to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who, behold, David seeks your harm? And he goes on to say, why are you wasting your time with me? I'm just a flea. I'm a dead dog. David begins to declare his innocence before Saul. I could have taken you out, Saul. I could be holding your head as I'm holding the corner of this robe. The Lord puts you into my hand. See, here it is. I'm not going to fight you, Saul. I'm not taking matters into my own hands. 
I'm going to let the Lord decide because the Lord is my defense and he will judge between you and me. Now, it's interesting to me with David's truthful words here. Think of how foolish Saul looked at this moment. Think of how foolish he looked and how wise David looked. And when Saul gets killed by the Philistines in chapter 31, the men who served in Saul's court will now serve David. Think about what an impact this situation made on them. The respect that they gained for David as a result. Think of the impact because David acted in faith and confidence in him grew tenfold. And that's the reward we get when we simply trust the Lord and his plan. People will watch you be faithful to the Lord and respect for you will grow tenfold. It's tangible and it will serve you well. And David says in verse 13, as the Proverbs of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. He was quoting some proverb. We don't know where it was. I didn't see where it was anywhere in the Bible. But he's just stating a truth. David uttered a proverb, short and concise, evil comes from evil persons. David really drives the nail home. Saul, why are you chasing after me? What's the deal? Saul had plenty of other more important fish to fry, like tending matters to his own kingdom. How about the Philistines that were constantly a thorn in Israel's side? Why is he taking all of these resources and wasting time coming after David? And that's what happens when we act out of some sense of self-preservation and fear. We do things that aren't important and a waste of time and effort. And I believe it was Francis Chan who said, our fear should not be a failure, but at succeeding at things that don't really matter. Hosea 8.7 says, speaking of Israel's rebellion, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So in verse 16, as soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? He calls him his son because he is his son. He's his son-in-law. He's married to Michael, his daughter. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. In verse 17, he said to David, you are more righteous than I for you have repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And he goes on. So after David finished speaking, Saul had an overwhelming emotional response. He weeps and calls David his son. And David, uh, he clears David of any wrongdoing by saying, you're right. You did it. You were more righteous than I. You gave me what I did not deserve, which was mercy. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. He could have wiped us out for our sin and rebellion. But he continues to show us grace after grace after grace. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Now here's the problem. Saul has this emotional response to his conviction. He's convicted. He's sorry. He feels the weight of his sin. He knows what he did was wrong. He was probably embarrassed in front of his men. But the problem was Saul did not repent. He didn't repent. He acknowledged his sin, but he didn't change direction. That's what repentance means. It means to change your mind 
and to change direction. Saul had an opportunity to do just that, but there was so much pride in him that he was not willing to let go of himself and surrender it all to the Lord. It's not enough just for us to feel sorry over our sin. It's not enough just to grieve. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul puts it this way, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, where areas worldly grief produces death. Saul had worldly grief. Godly grief is to lead us back into submission and a relationship with Jesus, a life that obeys him. I have a family member that's been an alcoholic his whole life, and he's always struggled with it. Several years ago, he went on a huge bender, a huge drinking binge, to where his blood alcohol level was four times over the legal limit. He ended up getting in his car and driving down Highway 77, motoring about 75, 80 miles an hour. He ended up rear-ending the back of a semi-truck, which crushed the front of his car like a pancake. He was so wasted that he didn't feel a thing. Doesn't even remember it. And when he woke up in the hospital, his femur bone was broken. Several ribs were broken. Several puncture wounds. I mean, it was bad. It was bad. It was by the grace of God that he was still alive. So I went to visit him in the hospital at CMC Pineville to pray for him and encourage him. And when I walked in, we got the hellos out of the way. All he did, lying there, in a hospital bed with a broken femur bone and all other broken bones, all he did was complain. I mean, the food is terrible in this place. The staff is so bad here. He even blamed others for his predicament in his accident. It's not my fault. I was shocked. I said, well, you're here by the grace of God and you're still alive. Isn't that what we're celebrating? He retorted, well, I guess so. I couldn't believe through all his pain, never once did he ever express any kind of remorse and never once did he ever say, I have a huge problem and I need help and I'm, I'm willing to... Do what it takes to get help. Never said it. Just blamed everyone else for his problems. It was then that I realized that his problem was never alcohol. His problem was pride. And it was pride that turned an angel into a devil. And that convicted me this week. He was blinded to the fact that the Lord had given him chance after chance after chance after after chance, but he never repented. And that's what's happening with Saul here. He doesn't really want to change. Godly sorrow is supposed to produce a repentance and a change in our lives. But maybe there's somebody here, maybe unfortunately you're like that. You feel bad from the consequences of your sin, but you're not willing to repent. You are not willing to let go and let God. 
But if you do let go, if you come to the end of yourself, you come to the beginning of Jesus. And he will set things right. And he'll say, I'll take it from here. I'll handle everything for you. In closing, this story is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the soul in the story. We're the ones who are trying to eliminate the threat of our personal freedom. We were rebelling. We were acting out of self-preservation and pride, chasing after David, our king, who is the Christ figure in the story. But instead of wiping us out, he shows us mercy. Jesus never took matters into his own hands. Rather, he completely trusted his father, even all the way through the cross. The cross. He then takes the kingdom into his hands, having all authority and power. And what does he use his kingly authority for? To gather us into God's family, whereby we can enjoy him and the sweet communion with Jesus. Where we get to know God. We get to know him personally and intimately. And you know, Jesus' robe was torn away from him at Calvary. But it was removed from him so that he could give us a robe of righteousness. Free of charge. Not based on merit. But based on his grace. That we will wear in his presence forever. What a God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Teach us, Lord, to depend on you. That simple dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the faith to just trust you. I pray for anybody here that is struggling with a situation in their life that that you would give them peace and that you would give them assurance that you are handling it. And that because of your nail-scarred hands and feet, your nail-scarred brow, your, your, your scarred back, those stripes prove that you will handle it and bring us into a right relationship with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us the robe of righteousness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.